All right, here's what, here's what we're going to do. Go ahead and take your Bibles and uh, uh, turn to the book of Colossians. We've been in there. We're about halfway through. We're about halfway through the book, and it's actually kind of a turning point because really for the first two chapters, what he does is he really lays groundwork for uh, the pragmatic part of your life. Chapter three and four talks about everything from how do you, how do you break a uh, destructive habit that's been uh, eating your lunch to uh, how do you treat your husband or your wife better to how do you raise kids. All that stuff is chapter three and four, but we're going to finish up chapter two today. But before we do that, I want to kind of give you a little quiz. Uh, I know some of you are not only parents of children, but you're also parents of teenagers, and you need to, uh, as a parent, kind of exegete their culture, which means it's good, it's good for you to understand their language, their verbiage. And so I'm going to do you a favor today uh, that actually will segue into the text. And that is, I want to show you the insider's guide to teen texting acronyms, all right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the top 10 teen acronyms. Uh, it gets kind of easy at the front end. Some of your teenagers are like, please don't, please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to go ahead and do it. So I'm going to give you up front. We're going to go through 10 real quickly. And the reason I want to do this is because you as a parent would never say, oh, I'm not going to pay attention. I don't care what my teenagers are doing. I don't care. No, you're a parent. You're already leaning in. Why? Because you're like, I want to know. I want to speak the language of my teenager. Now, it's good to understand it, but dad, don't use some of these, all right? Because it's kind of like that guy trying too hard, all right? So just, but you do need to know them, especially the last three that I'm going to get to. All right, so let's start off an easy one. This one, uh, it's the word GIF, graphic interface. Some people say GIF, some people say GIF. I really don't know. How do you, how do you, how do you pronounce that anyway? Okay, half said Jif, half said Gif. It's like half said, half say Lester, half say Leicester. Okay, we don't really know. It's like the mystery of the universe. Basically, a, 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 a Gif is a adds color to your text. It adds movement. And I'll give you an example here too. Here's the uh, this is the crying Jordan is the one. This is the one my son sent me because he's a big Golden State Warrior fan. All right, this is the one he sent me when the when the Toronto Raptors took took. Took them out, all right? It was awesome. Was it not to watch Golden State lose? Okay, okay, okay. It was. It was awesome. So here's the one that my wife sends me when I finish my sermon and we can go out on a date. All right, that's a, she is, she's pretty fired up. It's like, all right, Papa's and beer. We are there, we are there, we are there. All right, that's, that's a gift, all right? Uh, this one's an important one to make sure you have correct, all right? Everybody thinks they know it. True story, true story. There was a... Uh, a story of a mom who thought LOL meant lots of love. And so she sends a text to her college-age daughter and says, your grandmother died, LOL. Okay, you got to make sure you got that. It actually means laugh out loud. So get those things straight. Here's a couple more. All right, what's, it, what's TTYL mean? Absolutely. You guys are on it already. All right, next one. I don't even know. You're like, I don't even know why we're at church today. That's what you would say. You'd say, I, I, I don't know. I don't even know. All right, do a few more. Um, bay. Come on, what does that mean? Bef that's not my baby. That's not what it means, okay? It, it does not mean that. And that means, it actually means bef before Thank you. Before anyone else, before anyone else. So if you're like really serious, or you're obviously if you're married, it's not a bad play to say, hey, how's my bae today, okay? And if you really want to impress her, you want to say, you want to say this one, because this is dime, which means on a scale from one to 10, you're a 10. So that's kind of it, all right? Don't try too hard, but that's it. All right, if you're up there like, I can't believe my dad just sent that text to my mom, then you are SMH, you are shaking my head. It's like, no way did they just do that, that's SMH. Now parents, listen up to these last three. Last three are key, okay? 
P911. Seriously. Parental warning. Parent warning. Parent warning. Parents like parent in the room. Parent in the room. You're like, is that what that means? Some some of the teens are in trouble right now. They're like, I can't believe you let that out of the bag. That's what it means. I'm just trying to do you a favor. All right. Here's another one that's kind of it, kind of it as well. P-A-W. Parents are watching. <laughs> some of you are like, I'm gonna smack him. I'm just telling you, that's what it means. All right. P-A-W is parents are watching. It's like P-A-W, in other words, parents are watching. And so if that's you, then probably your teen is doing uh, V-S-F, which is very sad face. It's like, I'm very sad that pastor did that teen text challenge, right? You're like, why did you spend three minutes on that? Here's the reason. It's because as a parent, you would never, ever, ever think that that's not important. You understand as a parent, I got to lean in and understand and get to know so I can then disciple my teenagers the very best way that I can. I say that to say, keep in mind today, we're going to go through a text today that has a lot of cultural language that you are probably not familiar with. All right. Normally a lot of text is like super easy to see. Uh, Bible study rule number one is what did it mean then? Bible study rule number two is what does it mean now? And then Bible study rule number three is what does it mean to me personally? I say that to say Bible study rule number one, what did it mean then? I'm going to have to go a little beyond normal to say, hey, this is it. This is it. This is a cultural thing 2,000 years ago that while you might not say, hey, I struggle with that exact thing, we struggle with the principle. And it's so important what you might look at it and go, that's not important. This is so key. And here's what the title of the message is, is that Jesus is better than religion. Jesus is better than religion. And the reason that I want to make sure you understand this is, listen, I've been in the South. I got born in Atlanta. We spent some time in Texas. I'm back in the South. But in the South, it's so easy to equate religion and Jesus, religion and the gospel, and act like they're the same, and they're not the same. They're not the same. Some of you have actually rejected what you thought you were rejecting Christianity when you were not rejecting Christianity, you were not rejecting Jesus, you were rejecting behaviorism. You were rejecting moralism. You were rejecting get your stuff together. You were rejecting pull yourself up by the bootstraps and God is good and you are bad and you need to try harder. And folks, that's not the gospel and that's not Jesus. And so when you hear some terms today, when you hear terms like festival or diet or these other ones I'll point out, is just think, insert the word religion. Just think the word religion. If you hadn't been here, here's basically what it is. It's a letter written 2,000 years ago to a young church in what is now, what is now modern day Turkey. This was at a place that had a lot of roads that had already all of a sudden been developed. So you had all these cultures coming together, not unlike Western North Carolina. Western North Carolina is an extremely spiritual area. I'm not saying it's a Christian area. I'm saying it's an extremely spiritual area. You've got a lot of different cultures and worldviews and spirituality that come together in WNC, and all of a sudden it hits, and what was happening to the Colossian church is all these cultures are starting to squeeze the gospel out of that early church. And what Paul has hammered home is, listen, Jesus is not one of many flavors of this religion in this area. He said he is the one. He's not to be squeezed into a system. He is the system. And so what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is, listen, uh, Jesus is first. Jesus is first. That's what he says in chapter one. He stepped out on the front porch of heaven. He was the creative agent that spoke the world into being. It says that he created everything and everything was created for him and by him. Then he starts to drive home the fact that not only Jesus is first, but that Jesus went first. Before you ever loved Jesus, Jesus loved you. He loved us, why? Or we love him, why? Because he loved us first. 
We ended up last week talking about how do we take this weight of condemnation and do we take it off? We don't do it by positive thinking. We don't do it by being religious people. We do it by looking the fact that Jesus paid the sin debt on the cross and then he threw away our condemnation. Some of you left last week 10 pounds lighter because you were able to take condemnation and throw it where Jesus has put it. But then the challenge over the next few weeks is going to be if he is first and if he went first, then you and I have a choice that we need to make him first in our life. That's why the whole thing is called he's exalted over all. But the question you have to answer at times is, is he exalted over all in my life? So all that being said, when we go through this text, I'm going to basically try to lay out for you three different ways that Jesus and religion are different. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit that he would put that and press in on you those areas that have become very... uh, bogged down. Some of you, I was thinking about, you've rejected what you thought was Christianity and it's not, but also I know all of us, including me, even as a Christ follower, the biggest temptation we have, the biggest undertow we have is to go back to some of these habits. Martin Luther actually said, he said, we are hardwired for works righteousness. It means that our bent is to go, our undertow is to go back to a graceless religion. And so I'm going to go ahead and tell you on the front end, there's going to be, you're going to be offended. I'm pretty much today trying to offend everybody. So somewhere in here, you're going to be offended, but that's okay. That's okay. If you're like, that offends me, just make sure, hey, listen, if we can disagree, let's chapter and verse it. So again, I'm going to say some stuff. Listen carefully. I'll try to speak carefully so you understand it and you don't get mad uh, in vain. Here's the first one is when I talk about religion and Jesus is better than religion, that already ticks some of you off. But let me say Religion, the way we're defining it, is actually the classic definition. It's not about organization. You know, Jesus actually has a section in the Bible about organization. There's a whole section called pastoral epistles about how we're supposed to organize for the mission. Okay? It's not talking about belief. Obviously, you've got to believe some things. The classic definition of religion is this. What one must do or how one must behave in order to gain a right standing for God. Let me say it again. The classic definition is what one must do or behave like in order to gain a right standing with God. It's man's effort to appease God. Man's effort to appease God, that's religion. So listen to me carefully. The gospel is not only fundamentally different than religion, fundamentally different. It's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus has done. It's not only fundamentally different, but Jesus is fundamentally better. Some of you are gonna see yourself just like I saw myself all week and like Jesus is better. I gotta preach that all the time to my own self. So here's what we're going to do. Remember, substitute religion when we go through the text. So I'm going to go through 16 to 19, make a point, 20 to 22, make a point, and then 23, make a point, and then we're all going to go eat a lot of food. So here's what it is. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment. Just stop there for a second. Judgment, does the Bible say that you and I are to discern? Absolutely. All right, the most famous one in Matthew, judge not lest you be judged, and yet Jesus actually judges them like five verses later. So it's not about no judgment at all, but he says, therefore, therefore, what is that? Therefore, the therefore is connecting the previous thing to the gospel to say, listen, because Jesus died on the cross, because he took the legal document that all your sins were on and he nailed it to the cross, because of that, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of, and here the just religion, okay, food and drink with regard to a festival. You're like, what is that? Or a new moon. Oh, I had that for, that's a blue moon. Not blue moon, new moon, all right? New moon or a Sabbath, verse 17. These are, this is such a great word for you to underline in your Bible, highlight in your Bible. These are a shadow. 
These are a shadow. This is super important to understand, really the whole Bible. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the reality, the reality belongs to Christ. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Asceticism was basically uh, extreme self-denial in order to please God. Now, there is part of self-denial that you and I need to be better at. You'll see that in the weeks ahead. But this is the idea, if I just do without, if I just do this stuff, then God is pleased. That's the wrong motive. That's, the whole, that's, that's coming at the wrong direction. Worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason. All these are all about religion. By his sensual, sensuous mind. Verse 19, and we'll camp for a second. And not holding fast to the head. Now, we saw in chapter 1, the head is Jesus. So it says they're not holding fast. And so here's the deal. If it's criticizing what some people are doing, not holding fast to the head, then what should you and I do? Reverse of that. Then we're gonna hold fast to Jesus. That's what we're gonna get to. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. All right, here, put this one thing down. This is probably the simplest one. Religion is a shadow, Jesus is substance. Religion is a shadow it's a shadow. Jesus is the substance. So what he said is he's listing all these things. Again, therefore, he's looking back at what we looked at last week, that through the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, he has taken away my past, present, and even future sins if I'm in Christ. When he stood up on that cross and raised himself up and says, it is finished, what he was saying is you're not going to add to it at all. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the whole story of what he was talking about last week. That's the whole story of many of the epistles. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so what's happening is these people are coming in. There's like, you need to add some stuff to it. Add some stuff to it. And he says, food and drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath, all that. Understand culturally. Remember, what did it mean then? What does it mean now? What did it mean then? Those were all Old Testament laws that were speaking to some Jewish believers. Remember, the church wasn't that old some new Jewish believers who came from that background that were really struggling to understand the truth of the song, Jesus paid it all. They're like, it can't be Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it most, Jesus paid 90%, but I gotta add some stuff on there. And what he's trying to press home is all those things you're trying to hold on to in the Old Testament, their point was to point a picture, have an arrow pointing to Jesus. We talk about it this way a couple times. Um, We've talked about sonograms are a lot like the Old Testament. We said a sonogram is awesome when the baby's in the belly. It's awesome, it's awesome. Technology's amazing. From an early age, in the belly, you can do a sonogram, and they're awesome. You go, and they print out the picture, and you're like, look, she's got little hands, and she's got little fingers, and look at it. It's awesome. Then you get another one a month later, and a month later, and a month later, and anticipation builds for the birth of the baby. Now, as great as a sonogram is, as exciting as grandparents get, as many pictures as we put on the refrigerator, it's nothing like seeing that little girl face to face. It's like, that's my girl. There she is. Finally, that's it. That is, in a sense, those pictures are like primers as they point toward the coming of the baby. Now, the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus, and they prepped the people and pointed the people to the fulfillment of that in Jesus. I'll give you a couple of examples. Most people, when they do a year in the Bible, they bog down very, very quickly. They get through Genesis okay. 
probably get through Exodus. I'll just tell you right now, when they hit Leviticus, they're just like, boom, just stop. And the reason is it doesn't make sense because it's just typically it's like either super weird dietary laws or a bunch of sacrifices of animals. And you're like, how, what does that have to do with my marriage being in bad shape? And you're like, next, I'll just skip ahead to Psalms. Maybe that'll be better. But what happens is you don't understand the big picture. Leviticus is pointing out a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it's pointing out all those dietary laws. That's talking about, listen, you don't just waltz into God's presence, okay? You gotta get clean before God. But it's pointing out to the fact that you get prepared to come before God. And you think about stuff like even... Uh, like those goats. People are like, what is the deal with the goats, man? They're killing all these goats and they're killing all these. And that's pointing out to the fact that, listen, your sin is costly. Sin is bad. Sin has got to cost something. And so they would kill these animals in a substitutionary way to say, listen, there's coming a time, there's coming a time when the Lamb of God, the substitute is actually coming. And so uh, the reason I want to say that briefly is one of the things we've tried to drill home this week and one of the things we've tried to do for years now is get over the fact that here in the South, what has typically happened over the past 20 years is, is we've taken particularly the Old Testament and we've moralized it. What we've basically said is we read our Bibles and we look at these Old Testament characters and we're like, hey, be faithful like Abraham. Okay. Be courageous like Daniel. Be uh, a worshiper like David. Be a leader like Nehemiah. Now listen to me carefully. There is a place for that. Certainly we can learn some from their examples, but they're certainly not the end total of what you want to teach them because every one of them has some significant flaws. I mean, what, I mean Abraham lied anytime the pressure got ratcheted up, correct? I mean, do we even have to start about David? I mean, we don't have to start about him. All right. You think, well, what about, what about Nehemiah? I've never heard of him. He's awesome. I read that book one time, and it's a great leadership book. And he's a great leader, and there's some great things you can understand. But he's certainly not what you point to and say, be exactly like a Nehemiah. If you don't believe that, read the book in its entirety. And toward about the middle to middle back, he gets so frustrated with the leaders of Israel, he tries to pluck their beards out, strip their clothes, and send them out naked. I've been frustrated in leadership meetings before. Never have I ever thought, I'm going to pluck your beard out and send you out naked. Never thought about it, all. nor should I, nor should I. Why? Because Nehemiah ultimately is not pointing to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is pointing to, that's a shadow. Nehemiah is pointing to the real thing, and he's pointing to Jesus, just like the whole Old Testament. So here's, uh, here's the way I would say it. Because all other religions essentially say, this is what you have to do to have right standing with God. The gospel and Jesus comes to earth and says, this is what I've freely done for you to put you in right standing with God. One book I read this week says, religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion is man searching for God, Jesus is God searching for man. Religion is pursuing God by our moral efforts, Jesus is God pursuing us despite our moral efforts. Religious people kill for what they believe, Jesus followers die for what they believe. Right? So you gotta get this, you know, when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, it is not about us. Somebody pushed back on me a few weeks ago. I said, it is too about us. I'm getting so much out of it. And I had to kind of gently say, it's not about you. That's the reason you're getting so much out of it. It's not about you, but it is for you. It's about Jesus, but it's for you. And so when you're thinking, well, I, need, I need some instructions about patience, or I need some instructions about, let's just take that one for example. How helpful is it when you read a passage that says, all right, be patient, and you can't hold your 
temper at all with your spouse and you just, it doesn't help when they say, just be patient, be patient. But if you can reflect on how patient Jesus was with you and how long suffering he was with your sin and how many times you rejected Jesus's free offer of salvation. And when you reflect on that, all of a sudden humility comes and some calmness comes. And then that's where the change begins. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let's go to the next three verses. Verse 20, if, if is actually in the tense of sense, assuming it, remember how we always talk about, here's the pattern in the Bible. The pattern in the Bible almost all the time is that indicative imperative, indicative imperative. Here's what God has done, so here's the way you respond. Here's the what God has done. He's holy, so what? You be holy. So he's always this, here's what God has done, and based on that, you respond. So since, or if, with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Now we're gonna, this is the part where it's gonna start to get a little sticky in here. Verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to, and this is key, human precepts and teachings. Human precepts and teachings. Now listen carefully for like 10 minutes. This is, this is gonna answer like 100 different questions that we don't have time to drill down on at all. But what I want you to think is religion, religion promotes legalism. Religion promotes, it doesn't make you go there, but it promotes, it facilitates what we're gonna call legalism and Jesus and the gospel provide what we're gonna call Christian liberty, Christian liberty. Now this is where people get all askew. So again, I'm gonna try to speak precisely and so you listen precisely as well. When we talk about legalism and when it talks about the law, people get really kind of crazy about this. This is when you see people say things like, you Christians are such hypocrites, all right? You talk, about, uh, you talk about this part of the law being valid and that part of the law not being valid, and you're like cherry pick all the time. Now, we spent a whole sermon on that about the difference between the ceremonial law, which was obviously indicative of Jesus coming, the civil law, which was given to Israel on how they birthed their nation, and then the moral law, which is about God's character, which does not change. But two ways to think about the law. When I talk about the law, just think 10 commandments, all right? Just think 10 commandments. That's not the entirety, but just think that for a second. When you look at the Bible, and particularly the way that the Apostle Paul talks about the Old Testament, what you see is this. You see that the, the law is, number one, it is a mirror. It's a mirror. You hold it up, and it shows you your sin. In Romans 7, he would say, how would I know that I covet unless I looked? And it says, you shall not covet. So you look at it, and here's a, it looks at it, and it shows you the greatness of our sin for the purpose of showing you the greatness of your Savior. That's the purpose. Galatians 3 says it's your tutor. It's your schoolmaster. It's like I'm training you up, I'm training you up so that you would see the grace that is offered to you. But what's amazing is once you repent and believe in Jesus because of the sin that God showed you, then you go back, and it's not just a, it's not just a mirror. It can be a map. In the sense of this, you go back there and even as a Christ follower with all your condemnation gone, you can look back and see the character of God and say, this is the way I live a life that is pleasing to Almighty God. So before we get into what legalism is and license, please don't hear me say that we don't battle sin and battle it hard. If you're a Christ follower, you ought to be battling sin. The old Puritan said, you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In other words, sin is destructive, sin has collateral damage. There's some stuff God's saying, man, get that out of your life. Even as a Christian, get it out of your life. Not to try to get my favor, 
But because you have my favor, act like who I made you and rescued you to be. All right, but let's talk about legalism for a second. And I know legalism means different things to different people. But um, legalism is not, legalism is not being disciplined. Self-discipline is great. Legalism is not being super holy. We're called to be holy people, depending on how you define that. But since legalism has a lot of different definitions and some of you are going to get offended, I'm going to show you a picture of a buddy that I brought along and we're just going to call him Legalistic Lance, okay? This is Legalistic Lance. Now, he obviously doesn't look super happy, correct? Uh, I, rarely when we drift into legalism, <laughs> is there any joy there? There's no joy. And I want, you, I want you to listen to how, how does Legalistic Lance get legalistic? Okay, when I say legalistic, it's not about following God's commands, it's not about that. Let me tell you how this typically works, all right? First thing is, Lance struggles or falls in a particular area. It could be whatever area. So number one, Lance falls or struggles in a particular area. Maybe he doesn't know how to control spending, and so he gets all this credit card debt, and he gets in trouble, okay? Or it could be watching uh, illicit movies while he's on a business trip, or it could be the fact that he uh, struggles having a quiet time with the Lord. Whatever that area, he struggles in an area, that's number one. The second thing he does is in order to combat that area, he makes some rules. He makes some rules for him. So for example, let's say that he struggles with credit card debt. And so what does he do? He cuts up his credit cards. It's like, I can't handle it, so I'm going to cut it up. All right. I can't handle being on the road without looking at stuff that is bad for me. So I'm going to ask them to take the television out of my room. I've known a couple of guys that have done that. They can't handle it. Instead of saying, I'm just going to fall again, take the TV out of my room if you want my business. It's amazing. The hotels actually would do that. Or maybe he struggles having a quiet time and he's like, hey, I've got to have two of my buddies text me to see if I've had my quiet time today. That's no problem so far. He struggles. He makes a rule to help. Where he gets in trouble and where we get in trouble is number three is he expects others to adopt his rules. He expects other people to adopt his rules. But where it really starts to get messy is when he begins then to judge other people for not following his rules. What do you mean you have a television in your room on a business trip? What do you mean you've got three credit cards? What do you mean you don't have anybody texting you to see if you have a quiet time? And so verse 16 says people are passing judgment. Verse 18, don't let them disqualify you. Verse 23, promoting self-made or man-made religion. And loved ones, if you want to have your joy just sucked dry, stolen, even as a Christ follower, you want to look like that, okay? We all drift toward that. Let me just say it again. We drift toward that. I joke that I'm a recovering Pharisee. To some degree, so are you. Somehow, some way, we drift toward this. And so when you look at legalistic lands, just think, okay, what do, what do I do? Tim Keller has a great quote about the legalist. He says, you will at best be cold, at worst outright condemning toward those who are struggling. Rather than speaking words of encouragement to the struggler, helping to lift them up, you speak words of gossip about them to others to show yourself in a comparatively good light. A sign of this condition is that people don't want to share their problems with you and you are very defensive if others point out their problems to you. Man, that hurts. That hurts. That hurts. You know why? Because here's our tendency. We make our preferences. Nothing wrong with them. Where we get in trouble is we make our preferences our prejudices. 
We hold on. We, we, we got a preference and we hold on. It's not, that, it's not wrong to have a preference. But what happens is when we make them, everybody's got to do these things. Now listen, here's, here's another way to think about it. The legalist looks at a fence that God has made. Okay, the fence is good. Fence is good. Okay, maybe he keeps the kids in. Maybe he keeps the critters out. Whatever it is, a fence is good. God has given us some fences. Those fences are for our flourishing. When he says thou shalt not, he's like, be careful. This will hurt you. It'll hurt the people you love. When he says thou shalt, he says, help yourself to happiness. But what the legalist does is he takes God's fence and then he puts another fence inside it. God's fence isn't enough because I broke that fence a couple of times, so I'm gonna put another fence inside it. But then because that fence kind of helped me, I'm gonna put another fence and say, you better stay behind that third fence. And then a fourth fence and then a fifth fence and pretty soon he is in prison. He's in prison. Some of the harshest people, and this is the temptation for a Bible-believing, evangelical, gospel-centered church. That is the temptation to take God's fence and put a bunch of other fences underneath there in the name of trying to honor the first fence. And so uh, here's, here's, here's the perspective I'm coming from, just to, just to let you know that I'm, I'm in some of your camps. Here's my background. We didn't go to church much. When we did, we went to a mainline liberal Protestant church. That's what we did. I'm not gonna tell you what it is. I'm just gonna say we went to growing up Christmas, Easter a couple more times. We were nominal. That's why we only went Christmas and Easter, so we were nominal, mainline liberal Protestantism. That wasn't working real well, so my dad looked at me, and I was, the, I was the mess up of the four boys. He said, I'm sending you to Catholic school. So he sent me to Catholic school. Not just a Catholic school, a Catholic boys' school, all right? It's awesome. Okay, so he sent me, sent me to that one, all right? And then that didn't work either, and so I went from there, I went from there to nothing, just did nothing for four or five years, did nothing at all, then I actually became a Christ follower through a parachurch organization. And then after that, I was like non-denomination, but then all my theology training is through Baptist. And what I've noticed is every single one of those have their own different things that say, hey, I want to add on to kind of impress God more. So I'm going to take three or four just to, just to kind of have fun. All right. So this is probably not a great time to leave, by the way. Um, this I'm just saying. Uh, Here's where preferences become prejudices. Uh, let's just say Bible translations. Bible translations. I actually had folks that said, you're using Satan's translation. I'm like, I didn't know Satan had a translation. I wasn't aware that he had one. This is the only translation that is good, in spite of the fact that the best Greek manuscripts are actually from the NAS and the ESV. Um. Let's get, let's get, uh, let's get, here's another one. Um, kids' education. You're like, what do you feel about kids' education? What do you think is the right way to educate your kids? Which one is it? I'm like, I, I believe in kids' education. I do. That's, that's my bottom line. You're like, which one? Because here, over here, you got, you got, you got homeschool, then you got charter school, then you got uh, private Christian school, and then you got public school over here. And there's nothing wrong, let me say, there's nothing wrong with having strong convictions about either of those four or five. You're a parent. You can have strong convictions. Think about them, pray through them, know your kid, get the best counsel. But all four of these, the problem comes when you're over here and say, this is the only way that would honor God. 
or this is the only way that my kid will be a missionary. That's when your preferences become your prejudices. Some of you are going to have a kid comes up to you and you're still in your house and they're like, hey, dad, I want to get a tattoo. 15 years old, whatever. Well, listen, okay. 15 years old, want to get a tattoo. You're the parent. You can say whichever one. If they're in your house, all right, when they're on their own payroll, whatever. But Ephesians chapter 6 says, children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. But if you do it, please just don't tell them, you can't get a tattoo because God forbids it in the word. Please don't do that. Because what's going to happen is you're going to go to that one obscure verse in Leviticus and they're going to realize that hermeneutically that does not forbid tattoos. I'm, I can tell I'm going to email right now. So I'm just saying it doesn't. It doesn't. Now, I'm not saying it's a wise thing to do, okay? I'm not saying it's wise. Some of you all now, you, you regret it. Some of you got, a, you, got a, you got a little dolphin 20 years ago right here on your belly and now it looks like Shamu the whale. And you're like, man, I just, I, I shouldn't have done it. I'm not saying it's not wise, all right? It could, it could be, it could be, it could be just an unwise thing, but just a, it's not a black and white thing. It's not a God forbids it, okay? It's, hey, that's probably not good. Here's a, here's a way to think about it. What God condemns is always wrong. What God condones is right. What God neither condones nor condemns is a matter of conscience. It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of, is that the best decision? But what happens is if all you do is you're quoting something they know after they get, grow up and study it, that's not what that says. You're just slingshot parenting. You're just pulling him or her back and pretty soon it's like, boom, they're gone. Believe me. So here's a way to think about it. Um, God's laws are for everyone. Your rules are for you. God's laws are for everyone. Your rules are just, they're for you. They're for you. God's laws are good. They're for our flourishing, but your rules are just for you. And number two, again, don't make your preferences, which are matters of conscience, not clearly put out in the word. Don't make your preferences other people prejudices or make, make your preferences your prejudices. What does that look like? I mean, it looks like a hundred different ways in the way church does it. I mean, you can just go back to the cultural stuff. I mean, remember, uh, depending on your upbringing, um, people said, I like... I like this kind of worship music, so this is, must be the kind of music God likes. That is so dangerous, all right? We shouldn't dress like this because God doesn't like it. Be careful about your preferences, which are fine to have becoming your prejudices. It's very easy to do, even if you're zealous. I've got some preferences. I mean, for example, a preference I have, if you go to my house or into my office, uh, if I see a Bible, another book on the Bible, I usually just very casually take the book and put it underneath it because somehow when I see a Bible with a bunch of other books on it, it just, I just don't like it, all right? I don't know, whatever. I just don't like other books being on the Bible, okay? That's a preference that I have and I can have a strong conviction. Where that becomes wrong is if somebody's in my house or I look at my wife and go, stupid, how in the world did you put some Enneagram book on top of the Bible? Don't you understand that's God's word? That becomes a legalistic Larry, legalistic Lance. That is poor choice. And it can happen. It can happen. I distinctly remember, now listen, here's where, here's where wisdom and convictions, is, it, I got saved as a 17-year-old out of a pretty rowdy lifestyle. Two years later, it's like God was just ridding me of all of that stuff, all of that stuff. And so I was like, man, stay away as far as I could from it. Stay away as far as I could from it. 
all right? And so, like, when I was a sophomore in college, I, I was, somehow was having dinner with my older brother, who was like my hero. I mean, he's the one that was the tool that God used to change the whole trajectory of our whole family. He came to Christ first, and then two younger brothers did, and then I did, then my mom did. I mean, so like that's, and he still walks so strongly with the Lord, but I distinctly remember looking down at him, disqualifying him, judging him, doing all what this is saying not to, because we're having dinner, and he orders a glass of wine, and I'm thinking, heretic, heretic. I mean, I can't even be at this table with you, and I was sitting there. I'm like, when I look back, I thought I had zeal, zeal with no knowledge, so questions. What areas of you that you've elevated from a preference, which is fine to have, to a prejudice? I will judge you for not doing it. Again, nothing wrong with strong convictions regarding areas of disagreement, but you can have some areas of disagreement. Romans 14. All right, last one here. Let me get this last one. One verse, verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. It does have an appearance of wisdom. Have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, which is basically defining asceticism, but they are of no value. Here's the part you gotta hear. They're of no value. They're of no value. Now listen, let me say again. It doesn't mean there's not some things we need to put in our lives for the betterment of our walk with the Lord, the betterment of our family, the staying away from consequence. We're gonna talk about that, but it says here, but they are of no value in stopping, stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So here's the way I want you to think about it before we close up. Religion is about external conformity. Religion is about external conformity. Jesus and the gospel is about you being changed day by day from the inside out. From the inside out. I'm not saying that external conformity is not some stuff you've got to do. But unless the heart changes, then long-term change is not going to happen. Raise your hand if you ever drove when the law did not you remember when you didn't have to wear your seatbelt? Can I raise your hand? Okay, I'm amazing. When you don't have to wear your seatbelt, it wasn't that long ago. You actually, the law did not require you to wear a seatbelt. So most of us didn't wear seatbelts. Some of you do-gooders, you guys put the seatbelt on when they just suggested it. They, please wear your seatbelt. I was like, no, man, I wasn't doing it. And then they strongly suggested it. And then I remember they made it a law. I can't remember what year it was. It was like, I don't know, it was early 80s or late 80s, but they make it a law. You've got to wear a seatbelt. You know what I did for the better part of a year? This is like true confessions, all right? For the better part of a year when I would see a policeman, I would take the seatbelt. I, would, I wouldn't be wearing it because I'm like, I'm a rebel still and I don't want to do it and that's a law I don't want to do. It. So I'd, I'd see him up there and I'd take the, the seatbelt and I'd put it right over by the clip. I'd put it by the clip until I got by the police officer and then I'd let it go. How stupid is that? I mean, that takes more effort, more energy to fake like you're obeying the law. But bottom line, I was like, I don't care what the law says. As a matter of fact, the fact the law says I got to do it, I ain't going to do it. It's just that part of us. And he says, that's the way it is when all it is is, hey, just stop doing this or start doing that. Here's what I want you to understand. Religion is basically rules without a relationship. It's do this, do that. God will love me and accept me. And that can produce external conformity. But as far as deep change, think about the people Jesus came in contact with. Think about Zacchaeus, famous deal about Zacchaeus. There's no record of him saying, hey, go pay, go pay the people back that you stole money from. There's none of that. You don't see that, but he goes and does it anyway. Think about the lady we looked at last week, all right, the lady that got drug out of a bed and thrown in front of a bunch of religious people. And what does Jesus do? Remember the last part? It says, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. That's the gospel. I don't condemn you, but then comma, from that grace, from that grace, go and sin no more. And that's the pattern you see. What's trouble is, and this is, 
This is why people call us hypocrites. This is why people call us hypocrites. Now, is that always fair? It's not always fair. I don't believe the church is full of hypocrites because it really basically hypocrisy is I'm saying this, but I have no intention of trying to actually do it. That's, that's hypocrisy. It's like, here it is over here. Here I really am over here. And I don't even care about the gap. All right. I don't care about the hypocrisy gap. Okay. I think most believers, I think most followers of Christ are like, this is the real me. And this is who people think I am. And over the course of my life, I'm trying to close that gap to be who I, to be who I actually say I am and believe that I am. All right. So don't believe everybody's a hypocrite that goes to church, all right? But what happens is when we focus on just the external and neglect the internal, we become hypocrites because we do particular stuff but don't take care of the main stuff. I'll give you one verse, Matthew 23, verse 23. Here's what he said. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, which is like, I mean, it's like little, it's like, parsley. Think about like that little, he's saying, okay, you're tithing, but it's, and you may, you would never think about going like to 9.45%. You're always making sure you got that. He says, you do that, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you should have done without neglecting the others. He's like, I'm not putting down the fact that you are putting out the parsley, I, what I'm coming down on is you're putting out the parsley, making sure you do all this, every jot and tittle, and yet your heart is actually not being changed. And so the way you and I would look at it is how is it going internally with things like justice, like mercy, like faithfulness? And uh, let me give you two ways I would put it. Uh, loved ones, the way that you change, I've noticed this in my life more in the last three years than previous. I've told you about my journey, but here's what I've noticed is when it comes to actual victory over sin, victory over sin, the reason most of us don't get victory over one or two or three sins that you always struggle with, it's not because we don't know that they're wrong. It's not even because we don't know that they're gonna damage some stuff. The reason we actually don't do it is because it's bottom line, being told not to do something is not nearly enough as opposed to being told what God already did for you and loves you and reveling in that. And then your, your heart changes. You're like, why would I want to do that? And so that's what I always talk about. It's just go deeper and deeper. People are like, it's not about learning more commands. I can't even follow the ones I know. Can you? Seriously, can you follow all the commands? There's a lot of them in here. I'm batting like, I'm batting like 250, all right? Some of you are batting like zero, so don't look at me. I'm saying we do not have, we do not have what it takes to obey it unless we are anchoring that thing in the gospel. Think about you guys that are Batman fans. Batman begins, what happens? Bruce Wayne goes back to the Wayne Manor. And you remember how before he wasn't really Batman, he wasn't really Batman. I don't want to be spoiler alert here, but man, this movie's been a long time, so close your ears if you don't know the movie. Okay, ready? Batman begins. What happens is he goes back. It had grown over. The well had grown over. He goes back as a grown-up, falls down there. And when he falls down there, what he sees is it opens up this treasure of all that Wayne Manor actually was. All this stuff that he now saw, he saw, but he hadn't really seen it. And once he really saw it, he became the Batman. Some of us, you think the gospel saved you and you are grateful. And now you're just trying to huff it till the end. What I'm telling you is, unless you go back to the gospel every day, just like this text shows, you are not gonna get constant victory because your heart's not gonna change. 
Paul's the greatest example here. Paul went from guy that wanted to kill Christians to somebody who would die for people. He went from somebody who had great pride in his religiosity to saying it's like dung, saying it's like, I mean, poop is what he's saying. Read Philippians chapter three, seven and eight. He's like, all my religious stuff is just like poop. It's like the poop emoji. That's what it is compared to what I found in Christ. Before he was Saul, he was prideful. He was named after the first king of Israel. I'm tall, I'm self-sufficient, I'm awesome. Of course you would like me to Paul that means humble and small and little. He went from somebody who hated his hated people to saying, I would die for my brothers. I would go to hell for my brothers if it would actually help them go to heaven. That's love. You don't get that by just laying down a rule. So here's a prayer I put for us together. This prayer is, it's, it's, it's not fancy. We'll put it online later on. We'll put it on social media later on. So I want you to think about it. Don't just jot it down. You can jot it down. It'll be on, I'm sure we'll put it on whatever the stuff is, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Heavenly Father, thank you that in Christ, I have a relationship and not just a religion. Now you have to discern that. You have to discern that. You don't want to roll the dice. I think I have a relationship. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you, you know, okay? There's not a single example in the Bible of somebody who has a relationship with Jesus and then it's like, well, you know, I maybe do, I maybe don't. It's kind of, there was a demarcation point where, you know, Jesus saved my life. You might be struggling. You might be in sin. But if you know Jesus right now, you're battling against that. If you're not, then today's the perfect time with your eyes open right now. Just say, God, I want to turn from my sin and embrace Jesus by faith. I believe you. Died on that tree for me. That's like you can do that right now. But if you're a Christ follower, you got to go back. It's a relationship, not just a religion. Help me to live in liberty, not legalism. Now, we don't really have time to deal with this, but liberty is what we're, do, we're aiming for. We're not aiming for legalism. We're not aiming for license over here. If you're like, oh, I can go out and live any way I want to, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. How would you go out and live any way you want to when the Bible says, don't you know that you were bought with a price? You're not your own. So if your whole life is, I can just live any way the heck I want to live, then please go back and don't take false assurance that you actually have received the gospel. You haven't. You haven't. You haven't. You've got religion. You've got behaviorism. And you need to repent. But what a Christian can actually say is, continue to change my character and actions through the gospel for your glory. Why? Because that's what your life's about. 